Welcome to From Betrayal to Breakthrough. I'm Dr. Debbie Silber, and today's guest is the number one New York Times bestselling author, recipient of the National Jefferson Award, Dave Pelzer. Dave embodies a spirit, humor, and wit. As a child, his resilience enabled him to overcome extreme life-threatening obstacles. As an adult, Dave's inspirational work has encouraged countless organizations and millions of individuals to recommit and remain steadfast to their personal convictions. Dave has experienced a truly extraordinary life. At age 12, Dave was rescued and placed in a series of foster homes until he enlisted in the U.S. Air Force at age 18. He was determined to better himself. Dave is the recipient of the 2005 National Jefferson Award. Other alumni include Colin Powell, and Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Dave's first book, A Child Called It, continues to have worldwide impact as a catalyst for social change with an upcoming A Child Called It movie in pre-production. Before you listen to this episode, do yourself a favor and close down any distractions, put your phone away, and make sure you eliminate anything that's going to distract you from this conversation. You're about to meet the most resilient man I know, the one and only Dave Pelzer, who originally became known for his number one New York Times bestselling book, A Child Called It. Want to hear a story of resilience and strength? Here we go. Oh my goodness, everybody. This is such an honor today because we have Dave Pelzer with us. And if you haven't read the book, A Child Called It, it, it will change your life. And I'm, I was absolutely thrilled that he said yes to be here with us today. And I'm just going to, I'm just going to welcome him and we're just going to dive right in. So welcome, Dave. Hello. How are you? Uh, I'm, I'm great. Thanks. Thank you again so much for just being a part of this show. It's all about healing from betrayal and certainly what you experienced qualifies for extreme betrayal. Can you just share your story? Well, uh, gosh, in a nutshell, um, my goodness, I was one of the most uh, severely abused children in the state of California back in the day. Uh, 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 I think I was rescued in like 1970, 73. And it was just a a long-term situation where there was alcoholism involved and a lot of hatred and issues and denial. And I think, like you said, to betrayal, because uh, we all know in the first four years of a child's life, those are the maternal bonding years. And that's when the abuse started. It was little at the time. I thought I was a bad child. I was programmed that I was always doing something bad, but not, it was never identified. And then it was a uh, target child selection, which there was three siblings at the time I was selected as the target child for my mother, who had a lot of issues from her past, to vent her rage. And it just got so ridiculous where I, I, I would swallow ammonia in front of my father, who was a firefighter. And he would just stand there, drunk like my mother, and basically say, Well, what has he done now? He tried to steal food again. Well, Orva, if you only fed him some food, maybe he wouldn't steal so much. Or when I was stabbed about just a half inch below the heart, it was about age eight. My mother, who was a former nurse, refused to take me in for medical treatment for fear of exposing the secret that everybody basically knew about anyway. So it, to me, my story was never about abuse, but uh, more so on you know resilience and just surviving any way you can. Because the bottom line is, you know, you go through a divorce or uh, I'm a fire captain. I rescued a guy out of a sports car yesterday. Accidents happen or 
there's disasters that happen or there's medical situations. And sometimes you just do what you have to do to better yourself. And, and there's, there's something about betrayal that just hurts to the core because it's intentional. You know, when someone, when there's a tragic accident, let's say, or, or someone, we lose someone we love, uh, we don't, we don't question the love. We, we mourn the loss, but betrayal is, it's because it's intentional that, that really just absolutely rocks us. So from this young age, then what, what did you, what did you make of it? How did you, what did you say to yourself well, about and, what was going and, on? In the beginning, you know, again, as a child, you think in childlike ways. I mean, I thought parents were hatched, not born, and parents were godlike, you know, and parents are perfect. So the programming in the beginning was, what am I doing wrong? How can I fix it? You know, what can I do to redeem myself? Or what can I do to chase that person's approval? And again, you know, put that family unit back together. And it wasn't until age eight, when my mother was premeditated to burn my arm over a gas stove for about 58 seconds, 56 seconds. And she just looked in her eyes, she's gleaming with pleasure. And I was so scared about her having me lay down on this gas stove. I just manipulated the situation by having her hit me rather than burn me. And about uh, maybe, you know, five, 10 minutes later, my brother came home early from a Boy Scout meeting. My mother threw me down in the basement because that's where I lived. And I, I thought to myself, gosh, if I can feel my arm, I'm alive, which means I'm not dead, which means, oh, my God, I won. And that's when I kind of formulated that plan, you know, kind of like gone with the wind. You know, as God's my witness, I never go hungry again. And everybody has those moments, you know, those turning point moments, whether you're Rocky Balboa or, you know, you're lost somewhere or you're going through something that you have to do something for yourself. And, and again, with psychology, too, Debbie, is. The first eight to 10 years is 90% of your psychological makeup. So if I had to take that turn, it was the perfect, perfect time in my life. Because after that, I mean, I could not stop my exterior world. But now I can start stealing food. I would study kinesiology and learn how to roll up into a ball. So when she hit me, it wouldn't hurt so much. Uh, you know, I would develop plans to, to somehow better my little situation, as minute as it was. And I guess it was all about survival at that point. How did you relate or interact with your siblings? None. Uh, in the beginning, you know, my mother would, I mean, the, the brothers would ask, Ron and Stan would say, hey, what's wrong with David? He's bad. I have to discipline him. So don't be bad because I'll discipline you. Okay. And then the next stage, it's like, well, you know, uh, uh, better you than me. Sorry. You know, I'm, I'm sorry. You're, you're in that POW camp, but I don't want to be in that camp. And then after a while, you, you develop that bullying complex. You know, if she can do this, I can beat them up too. Mm. So it's a, and this is a slow uh, process. It started, I think, about age four. And then when I was finally rescued at age 12. So that's a good eight solid years, you know, and, and, and it got to be, it was normal. It was completely normal. Wow. That's, that's. An insane thing to, to, to call normal. So, so now let's talk about your father's role in this. Yeah. Well, my father was a very gentle man, not a gentleman, but a gen gentle man. And, and, and the dynamic, he was a firefighter in San Francisco back in the days where I didn't have Scott packs, you know, they used to drink on the job or smoke out during fires and stuff. He was a pretty, you know, hardcore guy. And part of the, the, the situation because, you know, I used to do a lot of work in psychology and you go to colleges and talk about these things. And, 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 and his, he was raised, uh, uh, you know, back in the 30s, per se, mm -hmm. that men 
brought home to bacon. And it sounds good, it's going to sound sexist, but we have to tell the truth. Women took care of the house and the kids. That's it. Dad took out the trash. Dad would paint the house. Dad would mow the grass. So those were his, you know, responsibilities. So when he would leave for 24 hours out of whack and see me in the corner or see me in the basement, what has he done now, Irva? She would say something. Okay, I guess, I guess that's, that's, that's all right. But then again, when he saw me swallowing ammonia, I think I was about eight or nine. This thing is, I mean, I'm already living in the basement. It's almost like you have, it's like an anaconda effect. You know, you pick up the little uh, uh, cute snake and you pet it or you do something like that and it squeezes you and squeezes you like, oh my God, it's too late. And plus he was an alcoholic as well. So his role is termed as the passive, passive observer. They know what's going on or they realize the magnitude of what's going on, but you know, they're too afraid of, of wrecking the relationship. It can be a hostage situation with the kid or the other siblings as well. So it's a, it's a very, and we see this a lot. You know, there's usually one, you know, alpha abuser and, 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 and the weaker one is like, well, I didn't want to upset the balance. So I was thinking of the other kids. I didn't want her yelling or beating up at me because my mother was rather small, but she was ferocious. Oh my God. Wow. So it's, it's virtually impossible not to have uh, physical symptoms, of course, mental and emotional showing up with this level of treatment. What did you notice? How did you, how, what, what physical things were showing up for you? How did it manifest itself? Well, I, I think it was a slow dynamic because again, this is a very learned behavior. There was an old saying in psychology that hurt people were hurt people. And my mother was raised in the 1930s in Salt Lake City, Utah. Now for any young ladies listening under 40, you're not even going to understand that. If you're over 45, guess what? You, you, you just turned ghost white. Because in the 30s, you have to think about it. The country's in a state of depression. There's not a lot of jobs. In, in Utah, it's men, dogs, and a thousand million miles below that, there's women. Women basically didn't have any rights. Women were mistreated. And my mom, uh, or pardon me, my grandmother, we were told that our grandfather had died years and years and years ago. And my grandmother was very uh, uh, independent, and she was one of the first female principals of a school in Salt Lake City, Utah. Now, the truth of the matter was my parent or my grandparents divorced, and that was scandalous. Mm. So my mother raised or my grandmother raised two children and low depression on one income. And she, I guess she, I mean, there's no doubt in my mind she abused my mom and my uncle. No doubt. Mm -hmm. And then she was raised, you know, this didn't happen, denial. Uh, 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 shut it down, put it in a box, uh, marry Mr. Man, pop out a few kids, and it never happened. So you have this cancer within you, you know, and sooner or later, you know, Mount Vesuvius is going to erupt per se. So it could have been stress from the marriage. My mother, I think, had three kids in less than four years. And then you have to think about back in the day in the late 50s, early 60s, we didn't talk about postpartum depression. We didn't talk about anything that ladies would, or new mothers would need, for goodness sakes. Mm -hmm. Then you couple that with alcoholism. I mean, there's all these little, you know, stones in your backpack. And it's not, you know, it's not like the, it's not like the one big thing. It's always these small little ripples. And that is such a toxic recipe. So, yeah. so here you are, you're removed from the home. How did you begin to heal from all of this? <laughs> well, you know, I, I think it's, it's, it's kind of a lifetime process. 
You know, it's like once you have cancer, you know, you or you always live the rest of your life fighting cancer and, you know, making sure your body's okay, your mindset's okay. I, I, I'm embarrassed because I, I was 12 years old when I was rescued. I mean, I, I used to go to school and I smelled so, I wasn't allowed to bathe. I smelled so rancid. Kids would vomit because I had that yellow, uh, waxy skin. Broken black flame glasses, uh, hunched over, stuttered terribly. So imagine being born and raised on Mars, and then boom, you're beamed onto planet Earth. I don't hold the language, or I don't know the language, or speak the currency, or hold the currency, in a sense. And and you know, a lot of people don't give credit to social services and foster care, and that's just plain sad. But it was those people that, you know, I was always a pretty good kid, but you know, I would I was kind of into everything. Like, oh my God, what's this? Oh my God, what's that? Oh my God, that tastes great. You know, my and and you know, I just had to slow down and learn. I remember when I was fourteen, and one of my foster mothers had me stand in front of a mirror, and I hated looking at myself. So I can learn A, B, C, D at age fourteen, or tying my shoes. So I was quite the foreigner. And I remember I had one social worker I had a little crush on. She was like six foot eighteen inches, and she had long blonde hair. And we're in this meeting. And again, I was 14, been in foster care for about a year and a half. And this uh, uh, psychiatrist, a specialist of the county, said because of the traumatic abuse, because I was isolated so much, because I wasn't fitting in, adjusting well, there was no chance. By the time I would be 18, I'd be dead or in prison. And that's a fact, Jack, because I'm the doctor. And, and my social worker nudged me, and she said something that resonated. You know, if you can survive all that you did, young man, Without any help, without any training, then I expect nothing but greatness from you. Oh, wow. So you have these people, I always say when it comes to speaking, whether you're in love or trying to make up from an argument or you got something to say to your uncle before he passes away, is just speak with purity of the heart. You can't go wrong. Yeah. And I always knew on the inside, I thought I was like Superman. On the outside, I'm clumsy and I don't talk and I'm the family slave. I'm not allowed to eat the family I eat out of garbage cans. I'm, I'm mocked at school, you know, but on the inside, you know, I'm super, super strong. So that really solidified that for me. And, and what I was able to do is use that in junior high, I would work 40 hours a week. High school, I'd work 90 hours a week because I didn't want to be homeless once I was 18. So you just kind of apply yourself. And I've been able to do that most of my life. If, uh, if I didn't speak very well, I would study language. I would do comedy and do uh, perfect impersonations. Uh, I, I, I had no coordination, but years later I flew for the United States Air Force, you know, so it's so, always these little things. Yeah. So Dave, what's, what's so shocking and, and so inspirational is that you had this internal strength because you, it's so easy to see how the spirit can be so broken with, but, with but, just such but treatment. Interrupt you, ma'am, and this is so important. Children are resilient, mm. period. They think in terms of black and white. You put a child into a room. You know, and, and they're going to cry or go crazy a little bit, but eventually they're going to make a fort. Mm-hmm. They'll, they'll, they'll find food. They will try to do something. It's the adults that have a lot of issues. Who's going to rescue me? Mm-hmm. My cell phone's going dead. I'm going <laughs> to yell at somebody. I'm going to sue somebody. So everything happened. You know, it's almost like this perfect timeline. And again, I have to say this. It was a lot of luck. A lot, a lot of luck. Mm. And, and 
So now here you are, you're in school. How did you're looking at the other kids and, and trying to interact with the other kids? What did you make of it about how they were living and how you were living? Like, did it even make sense to you of where what was going on well, in your I life? Never, I, I never interact with kids because I was always the outsider, you know, whether I was in foster care because there was a stigma about being foster, you know, being a foster kid and you don't have nice clothes or whatever. But I do remember before I was rescued, it was the first and only time I flashed. I mean, I hated, and I don't like saying the H word, I hated Fridays because that meant that meant for me no no food until Monday when I used to steal food at the schoolyard. And every 40 minutes, whether my, you know, if my mother wasn't blacked out, passed out, I would receive attention time. Whether I had to sit outside, my hands and knees in the fog of Southern or uh, Northern California, or just doing chores or just getting the crap kicked out of me. I remember one time, so the, you know, the joke was pels or schmels, or, and they throw little spit balls at me and spit wads and stuff like that. And, I, I, and I'm embarrassed to say this. I remember just standing up, and I felt like I had those Iron Man uh, gloves on. I was like shooting them death rays. And I actually said, you are so lucky. You have a bed. You have clean sheets. You get to bathe. You have food. You are loved. You think you're so tough? Walk one minute in my shoes. I remember I just ran out the door, ran out the schoolroom, and I slammed it so hard I thought the glass above it was going to break. And I was so embarrassed. Because right before I was rescued, I started to shut down. I wasn't sleeping. My parents were separated. And I knew my mom was slowly, slowly getting tired of playing this, this game that everybody started to realize. You know, so again, being rescued was at the right time, right place as well. But overall, I never interacted, especially in foster care, because I saw, you know, kids getting high or getting drunk or chasing the boys, chasing the girls mm -hmm. and doing stuff like that. And I go and I thought to myself, you guys are so stupid. Mm. Okay, I work, 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 work. So I was always mentally, I was always ahead. Physically, I was behind. Mm. I mean, I didn't, I didn't hit puberty. I think to like uh, maybe nineteen or twenty, because my body was just so underdeveloped. And, and you know what? It's it, it reminds me of like when you're the only sober one at the party when everyone's drunk. Like you see it so clearly, and mm -hmm. and I imagine you're looking at the ridiculousness of of, you know, this school, this childhood behavior of some of these kids, and they have no idea what, what, you know, what you were experiencing and what real challenges could be. Well, yeah. And, and, but then again, too, the other side of that coin is, I mean, kids are kids, teenagers are teenagers. They're, they, mm -hmm. they do stupid things and they're supposed to go out and date. And back in my day, you know, used to cruise around or, you know, you joyrided in cars. I mean, that was normal. I mean, I was just, I, I, everything about me was different. And, and again, a little bit of that Superman effect. I just thought it was, you know, because I knew at age 18, they kick you out of foster care and I didn't want to be homeless like my father. So I thought, man, if I can make a thousand dollars, I'll be rich. Okay. If I can make $5,000, I'll be like super rich, you know, because you're always thinking about, you know, Dr. Abrams Maslow's theory of survival. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Money equals food. Right. So now here you are, you're surviving, you're 18. Take us, take us through that time now. So once you were able to well, survive. I, I, I had a few jobs. And, and I, my fantasy was to be a firefighter like my father. And I joined the armed forces. And of course, the, the armed forces did not want a high school foster kid dropout. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, my God. So uh, it took me six months to join the Air Force. I mean, every day for six months, shining shoes and showing up and doing stuff like that. And in their wisdom, they made me a cook, a swamp cook. Like if you had a DUI or did drugs or beat up somebody before you got kicked out, you cooked in the swamps of Florida, like the film Papillon. Mm -hmm. So I just sucked it up because that's all I do. I suck it up pretty well. And I took some college classes 
and, uh, you know, went to paramilitary training. And then I finally got a job flying for the Air Force. And it was a lot of luck with that because I used to study planes. In psychology, people or children that are abused, they fantasize. They want to fly away from danger or fly to a safety zone, hence Superman adventures, those type of things. Mm-hmm. And I always study this one super secret SR-71 Blackbird, you know, and I just landed a job there and, you know, and everything started to roll for me. You know, everything <laughs> It's like all, all it's like you, you fail a thousand times and then you get that one break and you really appreciate it. And again, here's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's the most uh, amazing job in the enlisted air force. Mm-hmm. to be an aircrew member, boom operator for this oh. one weapon system. And I, I was very proud of that. It's amazing. How did it feel the first time you flew? Oh, you're, you know, it's like anything, you know, your first time, it's like you're scared and you can't enjoy it. Uh-huh. But uh, what I did is, is, is I showed up to this one base before my training and would get on these flights and I was with instructors and they put me back in the boom pod. I'd meet every fuel and I knew how to run the checklist. So by the time I got the training, I was like, oh my God, this is easy. <laughs> but uh, it's it's a very... You got to think fast in that job. You got to communicate well, problem solve. Uh, and it was a job for me because I'm one of those beautiful mind type people. I'm always thinking, like as a fire captain, when I get toned out, within five seconds of being toned out, I figure, okay, I'm going to need this piece of equipment. I need these people here. Boom, 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 boom. I call that going to Mars. Mm-hmm. So before you go to Mars, you got to think about all the equipment you need before you go to the moon and then bring that backwards. But uh, that was a good job for me. And then I started volunteering in child abuse prevention and uh, being a counselor in juvenile hall. And, you know, I got a few awards and then we, you know, wrote the book, uh, a child called it, which was uh, basically a thank you letter for my teachers. And I'm proud to say that the book was given to my teachers oh. on the exact day of my 20th anniversary, my rescue, oh. Oh, wow. the exact day. And they got the first copies. My son got the second copy. And, and I'll say this, uh, the book was, printed it wasn't published it was printed in 93 we finally got it published in 95 and then in 1997 two years later it made the new york times list and then it was on the list for over six years the number one book in the world the average day in new york times three to four weeks it was on there for six years why do you think it made the impact that it made because to me, it's simple. I, I, I'm a movie buff. I mean, I, I can, I can tell, I, I mean, I remember studying uh, Orson Welles, Citizen Kane, 2,700 pages, shot for shot, frame for frame, every, every string of music. And what I write is actually, or I'm just now starting to write book nine now, but uh, when I write, there's a certain situation, there's a POV, a point of view. And to me, a child called it was never about abuse. It's about this little kid's resilience. And it's told by the kid's eyes. Because uh, in a child called it, there's not one word, to my knowledge, that's over three syllables. Because kids, eight-year-old boys, don't think that way. That's why the book is very fast-paced. It's very graphic, because that's how little boys think. Mm-hmm. And then when I wrote the other part of the trilogy, you know, the Star Wars saga, we call it, as, as the character progressed mentally, the vernacular would progress as well, in a sense. So it was told, you know, it was weird. We would have little girls as young as eight or 10 to 80 read it Wow, boys, you know, you know, 12 to maybe 60. So you had all those demographics and it was a short book. It's only 22,000 words. You can read it, mm-hmm. you know, in less than two hours. Now, was it, was it healing or was it painful for you or both to, to well, write no, it, to relive it, that? It's weird because it's like being a firefighter. Like I, I had a friend yesterday 
he's supposed to be working on my house and I get toned out. He's not at my house. He's in a car crash. And I know this, he's a friend, you know? And sometimes when I do my job, I don't, I, you, you kind of like flip a switch, you know, it's, it's, you know, it, it's, you kind of do that. So I'm always thinking about the character and being true to that character. Mm-hmm. But I wouldn't say it was healing per se, because uh, a couple of years ago they had me write the screenplay mm-hmm. uh, for the possible movie, and I hadn't picked up a child called it, you know, in over ten years. Because mm-hmm. once I'm done with a project, I'm done with that project. I don't want to look back, you know, because you don't want to stain what you're doing forward. You know, you mm-hmm. want you know if you pick up a, a new instrument, you know, you're moving forward with that. And it was very difficult to read, you know, because you know I'm in my mid fifties at the time or early fifties. And, and you're thinking, my gosh, because that's the thing, you know, when you're a kid, you survive and then you, you want to break away. You want to do your own thing. And then you fall in love and get married and, you know, you become your father, your mother. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, you reach your mid fifties and it's like, how many summers do I have left? Mm-hmm. And the one thing that's taught me as a firefighter is, I mean, you can fall, just fall. And I'm gonna, I, I may have to call a helicopter to fly you out for a simple fall because anything can happen. And you're always thinking about, okay, uh, how many more summers again do I have left? Uh, what do I want to do? The bucket list thing. You know, so your your body goes through these mental changes. And that's why I have to say I was so lucky because here's the truth. You know, I should have ended up in jail. I should have been a terrorist. I should have been a very, very bad person. And I would have every excuse mm-hmm. to do so. And that's why I tell people, again, that divorce thing or someone did you wrong. You know, you just kind of have to, especially if you're my age, don't go there. Because that's going to take up two to five years of your life, all that pain and anguish and suffering, or I'm going to get that guy, I'm going to show them. And what you're never going to get out of it, what you think you deserve, or maybe what you do deserve. So sometimes you just have to just, you know, you got to write it off. Well, you, and you know, write and, it off. And there's a saying I love, I don't know who said it, but the best revenge is a life well lived. Oh, yeah. I, 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 uh, Debbie, I've never said this before, but I have certainly pissed off a lot of people. I had a gentleman who had a very, very, bad article on me. Uh, he thought I somehow manipulated my book sales so I can stay on the list or the awards I had weren't true. And I somehow just got them or everything I did was somehow manipulated. Mm-hmm. You know, and all I can do is smile at the guy. Cause at the end of the day, I know in my heart what is true. Mm-hmm. And once mm-hmm. people who are very, very sad, whatever, that's their side of the street. And that's what I have to do too. I, I have to keep, you know, when I work with people in program, alcoholics and so forth, you know, it doesn't matter what that other person's doing. Just work on your side of the street. And I have a program. I try to do three nice things a day. Mm-hmm. I try to make people laugh three times a day, you know, and, 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 and I do take time now that I'm in my late fifties, you know, I do three things for myself. I might have a glass of wine. I might have a cup of coffee. I might just read a book for a few minutes, but you know, I make time for me, mm-hmm. you know, and you want to be consistent in these things. Mm-hmm. You know, and, 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 and I've, I've, again, have made a lot of people upset. Why are you so happy? Why are you so nice? <laughs> Sorry, sir. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> Some people, they get it, but they don't want to get it. And that's their business. That's, that's their struggle. So Dave, what would you, if you had to say the most powerful lessons you learned because Be of your experience? Be happy. Yeah. I'll never forget. I did a book signing and, and when I would do book signs, you know, I talk about behind the scenes of the book or the publishing or thanking people for, you know, the book and so forth, the letters. And I had this one guy and you can tell he's the center of attention. He's overly crying and overly emotional. And Oh my God, me, 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 and me too. And questions, please. Mr. Pelzer, Mr. Pelzer, I, I too was abused. I too am a victim. So everybody's looking at him. Once my father yelled at me once, 
for 10 seconds and it's really destroyed my life. He's been dead for 30 years, but he's still screwing me over. What do I do? And one word, two words, what, what, what do I do to change my life? And inside I'm going, Clint Eastle, like, grow up. But you can't really say that. <laughs> so I said, uh, be happy. Mr. Pelosi, give me three words, three words that will change my life. Be, be happy now. Four words, Mr. Pelzer. Be happy now, damn it. <laughs> See, that's, I mean, I've had fun at war zones. Yeah. I fought the Tubbs fire. You know, in Santa Rosa, we lost 5,800 homes in less than three hours. Oh, my God. And by the way, the firefighters didn't really do all that much. It was the police officers that went door to door at one o'clock in the morning to get those people out. I had fun at the Tubbs fire. I'm, I'm, I'm a weird guy. I'm very snarky. I'm very, I mean, I'm, I, I once made Robin Williams spot himself. And that's pretty hard to do for Mr. Williams, by the way, ladies and gentlemen, to make him laugh like that. But, you know, I, I think no matter what you're doing in life, you just want to be happy. It doesn't matter. You know, what, think about it. We, our best memories as young lovers, as a young couple, is when we're dead broke, living in a crappy motel apartment studio, and we got leftover Chinese food. Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. I mean, so- money might make you happier, but if you're happy with yourself at size 16, you'll be happier when you're a size 10 or, or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're happy with the car you have now, and now you, you trade up, you're going to be happier. Because we see this all the time, people who win the lotto. 90% of these people are broke in seven years. Mm-hmm. And they're miserable. Why do they have the money? You look at the Hollywood fame game. You know, it's never enough. So in anything you do in life, do it day, work the program day by day. You know, do it, you know, study five minutes a day, save a dollar a day, walk 20 minutes a day, Mm -hmm. something, but be happy in your work. Just day by day. Dave, what do you want to make sure everyone knows before we wrap up? Life's a blessing. You know, I, I love movies. What is it? You know, sometimes you got to keep the faith because you never know what the tide's going to bring in the next day. I think Tom, Tom Hanks said that in the movie uh, Castaway. You know, you got to keep the faith because you never know what the tide's going to bring in the next day. Or in the course of a life, one never knows what events may transpire. And if you're going through a bad time right now, it's only for the now. You know, tomorrow's another day and just, you know, do what you can to, you know, get by today. And if you're going through a good time, you know, you got to get ready for those bad times. So enjoy the good while you have it. You know, it, it sounds, uh, listening to you, it sounds so, so practical, you know, just, well, that's all you have to do, but it's, I, I, and you're I, so I, right. I don't like these professional motivational speakers who have mm-hmm. a certain answer and they never give it to you. Life should be practical. Life should be like a golf lesson. Keep your butt up, keep your chins down and swing away. <laughs> it doesn't have to be that, it doesn't have to be that arduous. Right. Oh, Absolutely. Dave, this has been such a such a thrill. I, I know you inspired so many people. I mean, this is a story of resilience and resolve, and just making you know making such a, a, a wonderful opportunity, just creating such a wonderful opportunity with your own experience. I just want to thank you for your wisdom that you shared. No, Where and, can we- and, and I want to thank you, Debbie, for what you're doing. You know, and thank your audience members for taking the time to listen to this because this is important stuff. Yeah. Thank you so much. Now, where can we learn more about you? Besides every single person listening, you need to read A Child Called It. In addition to that, where do we learn more about you? Well, I know we have a website. I think it's just DavePelzer.com. I'm kind of like the most obtuse person in the world. So that's, we, we again, <laughs> keep it practical, keep it simple. Beautiful. Dave, again, thank you so much for sharing your time, your wisdom, your insights with us. We gained so much from from listening to you today. You bet. God bless you all. 
Wow. Dave dropped so many truth bombs, I'm speechless. And one thing he said will become my new mantra, be happy now. Seems so simple, yet when you decide to make it a practice, you can heal from just about anything. Stay in touch with Dave by going to davepelzer.com and we'll have all of his information in the show notes at pbtinstitute.com forward slash podcast. Here's my biggest takeaway. Hurt people hurt people. And just because someone is doing hateful, harmful, or hurtful things, it doesn't mean you're bad, unlovable, or unworthy. Remove yourself from the situation as best you can. And when you can, get the help you need. As Dave said, taking it day by day. I'm so inspired by Dave. And I'm also going to keep in mind something else he said. How many summers do you have left? Wow. That's powerful. We don't know how much time we have. So the key is to make these moments count. And that means getting as healthy, happy, and healed as you can. So let's start by seeing what physical, mental, or emotional symptoms are hanging around in the wake of your betrayal. Head over to pbtinstitute.com forward slash quiz to see to what extent you may be struggling with post-betrayal syndrome. And let us support you. Go to Facebook and join our group, Women Hacking Betrayal, where we give information, tools, and support to help you move forward and heal once and for all. Can't wait to be with you next time. And here's to your breakthrough.